1: Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the
2: app today.
3: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, the pomp and pageantry of the opening act of the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump are complete. The cast is set as prosecutors, defenders, jurors, and judge prepare for their roles in what is only the third impeachment trial in American history. But the question of whether there will be witnesses in the trial and who the witnesses might be will likely be delayed until Act 1 is over. It was an unusually subdued Senate as the gravity of a presidential impeachment trial set in last week.
2: Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution. Ceremony over, political political posturing
3: is well underway. House impeachment managers, the prosecutors, will open their case early this week. It's a now familiar one, charging the president with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress.
4: There is an overwhelming case. Beyond any reasonable doubt, the president betrayed the country.
3: The defense team, led by White House counsel Pat Cipollone and Trump attorney Jay Sekulow, has some new recruits, including high-profile celebrity defender Alan Dershowitz and former Clinton prosecutor Ken Starr. They say the House-passed articles of impeachment are constitutionally invalid and that the effort is a brazen and unlawful attempt to overturn the 2016 election and interfere with 2020. We'll preview the Senate trial with a top House prosecutor, Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler and Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn. We'll also look into the impact of the new revelations from Rudy Giuliani associate Lev Parnas. He's under indictment for campaign finance charges, but is implicating the president directly in efforts to push Ukraine into investigating Hunter Biden.
5: President Trump knew exactly what was going on.
3: Then former White House economic advisor Gary Cohn joins us for a rare interview, weighing in on President Trump's economic record and what 2020 Democrats should be talking about when it comes to the economy. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin this morning with House Impeachment Manager and Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler. He joins us from New York. Mr. Chairman, good morning to you. Good morning. Well, the the White House legal team sent their response uh, last night to the articles of impeachment, abuse of power, obstruction of justice. They, on the first, argue that there was no violation of any law. Uh, And on the second point, they argue that the president had the right to refuse to produce documents and witnesses due to executive privilege. How are you going to prosecute this case?
4: Well, both of those uh, statements are errant nonsense. Uh, There is ample evidence, uh, overwhelming evidence, any jury would convict in in three minutes flat, that the president uh, betrayed his country by uh, breaking the law. The GAO, the uh, General Accounting Office, just came out this week and pointed out that withholding money uh, from from Ukraine that Congress had appropriated is against the law, Uh, but we didn't need them to tell us that. and the reason he did that was in order to extort a foreign government to, uh, to, to smear his political opponents for his personal benefits and to help try to rig the 2020 election as he worked with the Russians to try to rig the 2016 election. The same pattern. So there is no question that uh, uh, working, with a foreign, working with a foreign power, trying to extort a foreign power to interfere in our election is about as bad as, as you can imagine. The main uh, uh, fear the framers of the Constitution had, uh, why they put the impeachment clause in the Constitution, was they were afraid of foreign interference in, in our domestic uh, uh, affairs. Mm-hmm. The The second thing they say that um, 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 he broke no law is absurd. Uh, abuse of power is the central uh, 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 reason for the impeachment clause in the Constitution. It's mm-hmm. all over the Federalist Papers. It's all over the debates in the Constitutional Convention. Um, th- there's no question about it. And the well, evidence is overwhelming.
3: Well, I, I want to ask... The, and
4: the last thing they said yes. is, is that, is, is that uh, the president uh, uh, is entitled to withhold documents. No, he's not. The House of Representatives has the impeachment power under the Constitution, and that uh, includes, and the yeah. Supreme Court... Uh, Uh, ruled that in the Nixon case, that he has every—that we must demand documents. He, He can't withhold all the evidence and, by the way, and then say there's not enough evidence.
3: Okay. well, on the question of witnesses, from what we are hearing uh, from Senate Republicans, there will eventually be a vote on whether or not to hear from witnesses, not a commitment up front, but an agreement to talk about it and vote on it later. Is there any circumstance in which Democrats would consider for reciprocity having Hunter Biden come and testify?
4: You know, the question of witnesses uh, in any trial. In any trial, all relevant witnesses uh, must be heard, whether if you're accused of robbing a bank. Uh, tes- testimony that I saw him rob the bank or he was somewhere else, he couldn't have robbed the bank, is admissible. It's not negotiable whether you have witnesses. And this whole controversy about whether there should be witnesses is, ju- is really a question of does the Senate want to have a fair trial or do they, or are they part of the cover-up of the president? Any Republican senator who says there should be no witnesses or even that witnesses should be negotiated, is part of the cover-up.
3: So you're saying no way would Hunter Biden ever be called to testify?
4: Well, I'm saying that Hunter Biden has no knowledge of the accusations against the president. Did the president, uh, uh, as, we, as, as the evidence shows that he did, betray his country mm-hmm. uh, by conspiring with a foreign country to, tr- to try to rig the election? Hunter Biden has nothing to say about that. Uh, they're, they're asking for Hunter Biden is just more of a smear of Hunter Biden that the president was trying to get the Ukraine to do. But the fact of the matter is, let the chief justice rule on on yeah. on uh, the chief justice in the first instance rules on uh, evidence. The Senate can overrule him, but yeah. no chief justice would, uh, uh, would 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 think. of of admitting uh, 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 evidence that that is not relevant. No trial judge would in in any trial. I
3: want to ask you about evidence because Lev Parnas, the business associate of Rudy Giuliani, uh, some of the documents that he turned over were included in the brief submitted by Democrats just last night. Many Republicans say it Mm -hmm. shouldn't be admissible at all. Do Democrats want to hear him testify? And given uh, his legal troubles, given his ties to Russian oligarchs, why do you think he is credible?
4: Well, he seems to be credible because everything he says corroborates uh, things we knew. Uh, new documents that that he has brought out uh, from the time corroborate what he was saying. But the, the main credit, the main thing is, um, all relevant evidence should be admitted, and the president. Has engaged in, a, in in a concerted attempt mm-hmm. to deny all evidence. Everyone who testified defied the president testifying. I mean, Mike Pompeo ought to testify, John Bolton ought to testify. What is the president hiding? The president says, "Don't let these people testify." Um, if they were, if they had exculpatory evidence, he'd be saying, "Let them testify."
3: Well, as you know, the White House argues that it sets a dangerous precedent um, for future presidents. But I want no pre- to ask you about, I want to ask you about the president's is, is legal team, or at least uh, some lawyers who are going to be speaking on behalf of the president, Alan Dershowitz among them. Um, Ken Starr also added as someone who's going to be speaking before the Senate. What do you think of their additions to the team? What does that suggest to you as someone who will be prosecuting?
4: I'm not going to comment on their witnesses, except that uh, Ken Starr thinks that apparently thinks that... uh, 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 Asking a foreign government to uh, involve itself in our elections uh, is okay, uh, but uh, the president uh, 20 years ago uh, talking about a private sexual affair, uh, that's impeachable. I mean, he's, he's, it's ridiculous.
3: And Alan Dershowitz says it's uh, not a constitutional criteria for impeachment, abuse of power. It doesn't meet that standard.
4: Well, I was surprised to see Alan Dershowitz say that. That's simply ignorance. If you read all the history of impeachments in the country, if you read the Federalist Papers, if you read mm-hmm. the, uh, Const- the, the, um, uh, the Constitutional Convention debates from the 1780s, if you read the majority-staff report of the House Judiciary Committee in 1974, there's no question about that. Yeah. It, it's okay. ridiculous.
3: All right. Chairman, we'll be watching. Thank you very much for your time this morning. We now go to a senator who was part of a small group of Republicans invited to discuss impeachment trial strategy with Leader McConnell. That's Texas Senator John Cornyn, who joins us now from Austin. Good morning to you, Senator.
2: Good morning, Margaret.
3: What can you expect uh, to see this week? How long will this process take? Will there be a motion to dismiss or are we charging ahead with this trial?
2: Well, we'll start with the uh, introduction of the resolution that will guide the schedule on Tuesday. And um, in the Clinton impeachment, that was adopted by 100 senators. Here, unfortunately, uh, our Democratic colleagues are probably not going to participate, but 53 senators, I believe, will embrace essentially the same rules of the road that applied to the Clinton impeachment trial, deferring the decision about additional witnesses until after both sides have had a chance to make their presentation and senators have a chance to ask questions. And so uh, we'll be sitting there in our chairs uh, about—probably on the order of six hours a day, starting at 1 p.m. on Eastern Eastern time and then uh, uh, six days a week. So uh, this is going to be, I think, kind of a grueling uh, exercise, but also one that will be public.
3: So you say there will be, at some point, a decision on—and potentially a vote—on whether to allow witnesses. You're in leadership. Do Republicans well, have, we- have the numbers to block uh, that vote from actually uh, approving witnesses to be heard?
2: Well, if I can make a distinction, Margaret, the uh, the House uh, heard testimony from 17 witnesses, more than 100 hours of testimony. All of that will be available to the impeachment managers to present their case to the Senate. And uh, then, after they're through, then if the senators — 51 senators want to hear more then, uh, then we can vote to subpoena those witnesses.
3: Well, as you know, House Democrats argue not all the facts have been revealed. That's why they're arguing for new witnesses and new evidence to be introduced. I know you've said you're open to hearing from former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Does that mean that the rest of Republican leadership is open to issuing a subpoena to compel him?
2: Well, I find it curious that uh, Chairman Nadler of the Judiciary Committee called this a rock-solid case— but if the House isn't prepared to go forward with the evidence that they produced in the impeachment inquiry, maybe they ought to withdraw the articles of impeachment and uh, and start over again. Uh, this isn't the Senate's responsibility to make the case. This is the House's responsibility under the Constitution, and the Senate's supposed to to decide the case, sitting as a court of impeachment. So uh, this is really on the House uh, to make that decision. Uh, they can continue to process additional witnesses in the House. They could even vote on additional articles of impeachment. But this, to me, seems to undermine or indicate that they're getting uh, cold feet or have a lack of confidence in what they've done so far. Uh,
3: but but yet you say the door is still open to holding a vote to hear from witnesses. I mean, you were Mitch McConnell's number yes. two for, for some time. Do you think he can control the caucus to prevent a vote to approve witnesses?
2: Well, this is a very serious matter. Obviously, this is the third time in American history where we've had a trial on impeachment charges. Uh, unfortunately, um, this seems to be more of a political or policy differences than, uh, than actually a high crime and misdemeanor, as the Constitution requires. So, so I think so you we, reject, we're going to proceed with caution.
3: You reject that government watchdog report, the GAO report, that does say there was a violation of the law.
2: Um, certainly not a crime and something that no one had ever dreamed in the past would have risen to the level of impeachment. This is one of the basic problems with the House's case. But isn't it
3: central to that question of the president withholding aid for personal gain, which is the allegation?
2: Well, it uh, he's been charged with abuse of power, which is not treason, which is not bribery, which is not a high crime and misdemeanor. So this is the first time in history where a president has been impeached for a non-crime for events that never occurred. Uh, ultimately, the investigation never took place, and ultimately the, their aid was uh, delivered. Uh, well, this is really unique, and I think every senator is going to take this very seriously.
3: Uh, well, that, that is certainly what the, the White House is arguing, but I want to ask you about the legal brief that Democrats did submit. Uh, it included— Uh, A number of things, including uh, documents that have been revealed recently by Lev Parnas, an indicted business associate of Rudy Giuliani, among them a letter that says that Rudy Giuliani himself was acting with the approval and knowledge of the president when he was reaching out to the president of Ukraine. Should all of these items be admissible during trial?
2: Well, as you know, Margaret, I was a judge for 13 years in in state courts, and in no court in America would that kind of hearsay be admissible. But it's a letter from Rudy Giuliani. Well, I would be careful before uh, crediting uh, the veracity of somebody who is under indictment uh, in New York, the Southern District of New York, and who's trying to get leniency from the prosecutor and who has ties to Russian oligarchs. Well, um, yeah. he, The Russians
3: he, exactly, have had but, a
2: lot to do with our elections and disinformation campaigns, and this could be part of that.
3: And, and you certainly would have knowledge since you're on Senate intelligence on that. But given what you're saying are Lev Parnas' ties to Russian oligarchs, which is often shorthand for Russian mafia, doesn't it trouble you that he was working so closely with Rudy Giuliani, who was acting on the president's behalf and saying he was acting on the president's behalf?
2: Well, there's no question that there have been uh, a a series of grifters and other hangers-on that have associated themselves with the president's campaign or claimed to have special relationships with the president. Uh, But this is not the issue that the Senate's going to be deciding. Um, We'll take the issue of evidence uh, as it comes. If the impeachment managers want to rest their case on the credibility of somebody who's under indictment in the Southern District of New York, extensive ties to Russian oligarchs and organized crime, as you point out, then that's their choice.
3: Is Congress going to investigate? Should they investigate what was going on with Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch, who, according to these documents released by Lev Parnas, appears to have been under surveillance?
2: I'm sure that will happen. And um, I know the uh, Ukrainian uh, government has asked for some help in, uh, in some of this investigation. But as you point out, I have been a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, during a three-year-plus investigation into the Russian active measures campaign. We know that uh, Ukraine was plagued with corruption. We know of the ties between uh, Ukraine and, uh, and uh, Russian oligarchs, which are proxies for Vladimir Putin. And so that's why I, I think we need to approach all of this with a little bit of caution and make sure we have our facts right and make sure we know about the credibility. Uh, problems that some of these purported witnesses have before we take it at face value.
3: But these text messages—are are you saying there's reason not to believe that she was indeed being surveilled or potentially at risk?
2: Yeah, I just don't know the answer to that. Um, I would say I—I would I, say anything is possible in this uh, in this uh, s- smarmy uh, environment in Ukraine and 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 uh, in Russia.
3: Do you have questions for Rudy Giuliani about any of this?
2: Uh, not relative to the impeachment. I just, uh, you know, that's, that's a relationship that causes many of us to sort of scratch our heads. Um, but I'd say he's not relevant uh, to the articles and what the Senate's going to be asked to do, impeaching a president for the third time in American history for a non-crime over events that never occurred.
3: Senator Cornyn, thank you. And we'll be back in one minute with former director of the National Economic Council, Gary Cohn. Stay with us.
1: This podcast is supported by FedEx. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
3: We're back with Gary Cohn. He is the former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. He's back in the private sector these days. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So the economy is going to be front and center in this election. Um, Many economists say we're overdue for a recession. Do you think we're on the brink of one?
5: First of all, it's great to be here. I know a lot of people have been talking about a recession. I do not see a recession on the horizon here. The U.S. economy is strong and continues to be very strong. The U.S. consumer is very strong. If you look at what's happened in the last couple of years with tax reform, we have put more disposable income in the hands of the U.S. consumer, and the U.S. consumer is out spending it. So then why he-
3: is the president and his, the man currently in the job he once held, Larry Kudlow, continuing to criticize the Fed chairman?
5: I'm not worried about interest rates right now. I think our interest rate policy is in a good place. I think the consumer is in a good place, and I think the U.S. economy is in a good place. We actually have interest rates at a level right now where activity is growing. I think that you know fourth quarter GDP Will come in around two, two and a half percent. So Probably you, you differ from percent. the
3: president on that quibble. I, about I, I don't think currently. I differ
5: from the president on the economy being strong. I think we right. agree completely that but the economy is strong. Rates. Yeah, I agree that I, I think the Fed is in a good place on interest rate policy.
3: I want to ask you about trade. Um, this week, the United States and China to. Largest economies in the world signed this Phase One trade deal. There's like 200 billion in promised purchases, but there's still like 300 billion dollars worth of goods under tariff. So, what does this actually accomplish? What What do you see it?
5: So, first of all, anytime the United States and China get together Mm -hmm. and sign an agreement, I think we should applaud that. I mean, the mere fact that we got a 90-plus page agreement signed between, between the two countries is very good relative to where we were months ago when everyone thought we were going to continue to feud with China. So we've got some trade agreement in place. The Chinese are going to buy some more goods from the United States, which has to be a good thing. But there's also in that agreement... There are some provisions that free up um, trademarks and trade patents and trade secrets, which is very, very good. I thought this was
3: about intellectual property and theft and all those things. This didn't
5: address—look, this did not address the big issue, the big issue the president and I agreed upon is that the Chinese had been stealing our intellectual property. They've been infringing on our, our trademarks. They've been infringing on our copyrights. It has not addressed that. And we still have to continue to address that.
3: Do you think China's going to hold up its end of the deal and actually enact some of the reforms they say they're going to
5: carry out? I, I, I think they're going to. I think they're going to open up their markets. I think the Chinese have been close to opening up their markets for the, for the industries that were listed in there. So mm. I'm cautiously optimistic that the Chinese are going to start reforming and opening up their markets. So
3: you resigned over a difference about tariffs or at least that was
5: a yeah i, I don't think that's actually accurate but go ahead what
3: well then why did you resign Well
5: look i i i left the administration for a variety of different reasons um and, and the president and i had very open conversations about my policy views and his policy views we'd accomplished a lot And at the end of the day, he was going a different direction on some of the trade negotiations than than I would have gone. I agreed fundamentally on what the issue was. Mm -hmm. I just didn't agree on how to solve the issue.
3: So the steel and aluminum tariffs was what many thought was the impetus for your resignation.
5: Well, I didn't think, You're the, saying st- it's not. I didn't think the steel and aluminum tariffs were helpful to our economy.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes to the tariffs that were used to get to the negotiating table with China on this deal, or where ultimately they ended up with the free trade deal, the new NAFTA, so to speak, USMCA, can the president say, look, people may not like my tactics, but I got this done?
5: Was he ultimately right? The, were you wrong? They, they can say that. I don't think we would have gotten to a different outcome. I don't think the tariffs helped us get to any different outcome. Did it hurt the U.S.? I think it has hurt the U.S. I think it, it's totally hurt the United States. The, look, the U.S. economy is very strong, very solid. Employment growth is great. But we're missing a, a big component. We're missing the capital expenditures from companies in the United States. That was a key component to tax reform.
3: Lowering what, the corporate tax rate is what you thought was going to get companies not, to spend Not
5: lowering. More. We actually gave them expensing of CapEx for the first five years. They could 100% expense their CapEx. But the minute you turn around and put steel and aluminum tariffs on, the minute a company's thinking about spending capital, what do you go out and buy? You go out and buy steel and aluminum. That's mm-hmm. how you build factories. That's how you build property, plant, and equipment. So all of a sudden, the advantages that we were trying to give companies to help stimulate the economy, to build facilities, to go out and hire people to drive wages, we took away that advantage by taxing the input that they needed You're to saying build. The
3: president got in his own way.
5: I'm saying the policies collided with each other.
3: Gary Cohn, stay with us, and we will be right back in a moment.
1: When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stewart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stewart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stewart Freeze-Dried Dog Treats, Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today.
3: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation with former director of the National Economic Council, Gary Cohn. So at this signing ceremony the president did this week with China, he said...
6: I made a lot of bankers look very good. The
3: top six U.S. banks saved about $32 billion because of the tax cuts that you helped craft. This is analysis according to, to Bloomberg News. The, the hit on the tax law is that it is good for corporations, it's good for business, it's not good for the little guy. Why do you think this analysis is wrong? The president seems to be saying and applauding that he's helping out big banks.
5: Well, our, our tax bill is clearly working, which is great. We've made U.S. businesses competitive again with the rest of the world. We lowered the corporate tax rate to 21%. So we now have a corporate tax rate that is competitive with the rest of the world. Yes, we lowered corporate tax rates. And that in itself costs less than $100 billion a year to do that. But it stimulates huge economic growth. The businesses in the United States now can thrive, which means that they can grow. They can go out and hire people, which we've seen. We've seen record unemployment. We've seen record unemployment rates down to 3.5%. We've seen wage growth. We've seen 3% plus wage growth. And most importantly... You put this all on the tax law. We've seen a lot of it has to do with the tax law. It has to. We've seen higher-end wage growth at the bottom pay scale than we have at the top. So we're seeing the incentives that we created in the tax law by lowering the corporate rate. We're seeing that happen. And and that is happening in the last couple of years.
3: There's a whole debate about the contribution to the deficit, but I want to put that aside here because I want to focus in on something. (laughs) I want to focus in on something, though, that that is really resonating politically. And it is this broader argument that this country somehow is rigged to benefit the wealthy and disadvantage the poor. And you've even had Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan. You've had Hank Paulson, former Treasury Secretary, former head of Goldman Sachs. I know you know him. They've said that they're all concerned about income inequality growing in this country. Are you concerned?
5: Of course I'm concerned. But you you don't think in any
3: way that there have been contributions to that through the tax law you helped right?
5: I, I think there have been contributions to the positive. I think if you look at the data, you'll see that we have grown wages at the bottom end of the pay cycle scale, I'm sorry, pay cycle scale, faster than we've grown them at the top. It's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to attract more jobs back to the United States, put more people to work. And that's what we're seeing happening.
3: Michael Bloomberg says about this tax law, nearly all the money goes to people like me who don't need it. This is a guy who knows Wall Street who is a billionaire, he's saying that the tax law is, is only advantaging people like him.
5: I'd love to know how it's advantaging him. I'd, I'd love to see that. Because at the end of the day, we have lowered rates. I'll agree that we've lowered rates. We have broadened the base, meaning that we make more of your income taxable. That's basic tax policy. Lower rates, broaden base. Meaning you get rid of more of the loopholes that people have used to deduct from their income what they pay taxes on. We got rid of a lot of the Mm loopholes. So people are having to pay more taxes. uh, They're having to pay tax on more of their income. Yes, they're paying it at a little lower rate.
3: Are you going to endorse Michael Bloomberg, whose board I believe you sit on uh, as part of one of his Bloomberg entities? uh, I
5: sit on one of his, his emerging market boards. I guess it's a board.
3: But that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be voting for him. It does not. Um, Two of the candidates who are also vying for the Democratic nomination, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, constantly come back to this idea of income inequality. Um, They have proposed taxes on billionaires, taxes on financial transactions. Elizabeth Warren has specifically referred to that. People making over $50 million having an additional 2% tax. What would the impact of those policies be from your perspective?
5: Look, our tax system in the United States is very, very progressive. We have over 50%... Of the population today workers do not pay a dollar of federal income tax. So if you're going to collect more revenue, which I'm not against, we have to collect more revenue, Mm -hmm. it's going to come from the top half of workers. And in fact, it's going to come from the top 10% of workers. That's where that's where you can find the taxable income. I think that we will end up doing that. We will potentially need to do that. But these fangled plans that they're coming up with, we don't need to do things like that to collect more income. From people, We have a basic tax system that works, and we can do some basic fundamental things if we need to collect more money. The question is, do we need mm-hmm. to collect more money? You know, we look at spending, and we look at revenue, and we don't talk about them in the same sentence. We, we, we collect taxes, and then we spend. And, and Congress never thinks about how much money they have to spend. They just go spend. Mm-hmm. And so you wouldn't run your household like that. I wouldn't run my household like that. I would decide how much revenue I have and then how much I could spend.
3: Well, you're, you're a Democrat. Yes, I am. Is there a single Democrat that you would consider voting for?
5: They're, they're, I, I'll consider voting for anyone. I vote on policy. Even
3: Elizabeth Warren, whose policy... I just will consider
5: to... voting for anyone, I said. I didn't say I would. I said I'd consider voting for them.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's evasive. Yeah. In pulling apart some of her proposals, it, you seem to be reflecting a lot of what Wall Street says, which is that uh, there is deep concern over this focus on uh, the financial community and corporations, etc. In, in I, this environment, is this at, enough that you see some of the people you know on I, Wall Street continuing to vote Along uh, lines of whatever the president is putting forward, even if they don't like some of his behavior, vote for him because of what he's doing.
5: For uh, that's banks. a hy- that's a hypothetical question. I don't know. What you I do know. know what I do know is the economy is really strong, mm-hmm. and the Democrats haven't really come up with an idea how to help the economy get even stronger. So it's probably easier to talk about corporate greed and talk about Wall Street and talk about technology companies because they don't really have an answer for an economy that's growing 2.5% with 3.5% unemployment and 3% wage growth. I haven't heard their answer on that, except let's tax it to death.
3: So, as you said, you identify as a Democrat. You did have disagreements with the president on a number of things. I was there in Trump Tower the day of the... Uh, Charlottesville reference, find people on both sides. I remember your face that day, and you were very public about some of your differences with the president. Will you vote for him?
5: I'm very supportive of the president's economic policy. I'm very supportive of what he's done on deregulation. I haven't heard anyone who's come up with a better policy yet. Now, I just don't vote on the economy. Mm -hmm. I vote on a lot of the social issues as well. So, you know, in many respects, I've got to balance both sides of that equation before I figure out who I'm going to vote for. So you're leaving the door open? I'm leaving the door open, but at this point, I don't have any intention not to vote for the president.
3: (laughs) You are a frank guy. You're usually pretty direct. Yeah. Is there anyone around the president who can be direct with him right now? Is there anyone doing what you said you did when guiding him on some of these economic policies?
5: I don't know. I've been gone a year and a half. I'm sure there are people talking to the president.
3: When the president can say, look, I've gotten these tariffs that have helped me get this free trade deal with North America, these tariffs that have helped me get this phase one deal with China, doesn't that encourage the president's approach, one that you have said you have differed with him on?
5: It may encourage his approach. But he, he's also got advisors in there that I'm sure are telling him differences. I know that there are people in there. You know, Secretary Mnuchin and I had a lot of conversations where we agreed on tariffs. And I'm sure the Secretary's talking to the president about tariffs and what effect they're having and what effect they're not having.
3: Lastly, I want to ask you about a new book. I know you haven't read it. It's coming out, <laughs> and there have been excerpts released that directly reference you, which is why I want to give you a chance to respond. Um, He's called—the president is, is, in this meeting, accused of calling advisors dopes and babies and the like. Is the, the description of the president and his management style ma- matching your experience?
5: I, I don't know which book you're referring to. As you said, I haven't read it, so I, I, I wouldn't know.
3: The management style of berating
5: advisors. Look, the, the president is—what you see on TV is exactly what you get in private with the president. The President is the same person behind closed doors as he is out in public, which is a, which is a unique feature. You know, it's it's not like he turns it on or turns it off when he walks outside. So you've seen everything the President has. That's exactly what you see when you're in a private meeting with him.
3: All right. Gary Cohen, thank you for your time. Thank you. We'll be right back with our political panel. Stay with us.
7: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment.
3: We turn now to our political panel for some analysis. Jerry Sibes, the executive Washington editor at The Wall Street Journal. Susan Page is the Washington bureau chief of USA Today. Ed O'Keefe is our chief political correspondent, and Weijia Jiang covers the White House for CBS News. Welcome to the table. Uh, Jerry, the president seems to have shifted his request for what he wants out of the Senate trial, or at least the Senate may not be giving him everything yeah. he wants. What's going on behind the scenes?
8: I think in the last few days there has been a feeling that's taken hold at the White House that's being conveyed to Senate Republicans that we would like to get this impeachment trial over with as fast as possible, as opposed to let's stretch it out, let's have this exonerate the president. I think there's now a real fear that the longer this goes on, the greater the risk of unexpected, unpleasant surprises. And Lev Parnas, who you talked about earlier, kind of illustrated that this week. Somebody comes in out of the blue during the middle of the process, starts saying things that make Republicans very nervous. Maybe that increases the chances that Senate Republicans will vote to call witnesses. That's not where the White House wants to go. So I think you're seeing the president pressure Senate Republicans, and you're seeing Senate Republicans having conversations this weekend about how can we speed this up and get to the finish line faster.
3: But, Susan, you, you heard some of this with Senator Cornyn. I mean, he's talking about the gravity of the moment. That doesn't sound like something you put on fast forward.
9: You know, I thought it was remarkable what we saw over the last couple of days. We've been talking about impeachment since Inauguration Day. Mm. Uh, it's not a surprise that the president is being impeached, although maybe it's a surprise that it's over aid to Ukraine. Uh, but, I thought that with the transmission of the articles of impeachment, with the arrival of the chief justice, with the senators signing the oath book, that we had a sense of some of the importance and the gravity of what is ahead. I'm not sure that's going to hold for an impeachment trial, especially with Alan Dershowitz on the uh, on the president's defense team. Uh, But for at least a moment, it seemed like a different kind, a more serious exercise.
3: Than it's seen before. Ouija, you spoke to Alan Dershowitz, I know, in your reporting. He's got his own legal problems, um, but he's someone the public knows well from being on television. Ken Starr, people know him from the Clinton impeachment. What is behind this this casting, if that's the right word, of these individuals?
1: You know, that baggage could follow them if you believe that the company you keep uh, says something about you. But President Trump clearly doesn't care because he really cares about the appearance of his legal team. And he thinks that Dershowitz and Starr, despite uh, the other things that come along with them, will lend credibility to his case, along with, quote, great television ratings, according to an advisor uh, to the White House. So the president thinks that they'll make for great TV to put on a show for who he believes are the real
3: jurors in this case, not the senators, but the people watching at home. Will it be great TV, Ed? I mean, this is something that is so so solemn, so scripted. The senators can't even speak.
6: Right. It, and I is think Mitch only, McConnell
3: planning for great TV, or is well, he have something else? In he, mind? He's
6: he's hoping for a dignified process, uh, and if that means bad TV, so be it. And remember, there's only going to be like four camera angles in the room. We don't get to see the jurors necessarily during this trial, so you'll get no facial reactions from guys like. Jim Inhofe or uh, Chris Murphy. You know, it's just, it's just going to be sort of whoever's speaking and the chief justice for the most part. He'll get plenty of airtime. Look, McConnell has four priorities here over the course of the next few weeks. Manage the Senate and make sure it's a dignified process. But three other important things. He's got to manage the president and his expectations. He's got to manage the fact that several, 22 of his colleagues are up for re and about seven or eight of them are in trickier contests than they'd like. And he has his own reelection back home. So he has to be seen as not only maintaining the decorum but also keeping in the back of his mind or in front of him that this could be a factor 11 months from now in elections across the country.
9: You know what he's lucky with? John McCain is not in the Senate. Can you imagine the fifth and sixth and seventh tours that McConnell would face if John McCain were still representing the state of Arizona, what does that mean uh, uh, Other Lindsey Graham would do? Does that mean uh, Mitt Romney would feel more empowered to stand up in a serious way? Yeah.
6: And I would, I would argue, too, that there could be somebody who emerges as, if not a McCain some Republican that does step up and say we do need but, to allow this to play
8: out a But we should better. remember, though, that the, the moment that would make for great TV, to your question, would be if John Bolton, the former National Security mm-hmm. Advisor, does in fact testify. That mm-hmm. would be great TV. That would be a dramatic moment, and I think not getting to that point is a top goal of Mitch McConnell in the White House.
3: And while impeachment does not poll as a political win necessarily for Democrats, it's apparently helping fundraising at the RNC, Jerry.
8: Oh, it has. And it has since for several weeks now. And they've raised millions of dollars and they've signed up lots of volunteers. People on the Trump team, people out in the country are are unhappy about this. And they're voting with their feet and their dollars right now to some extent. By the way, one of the uh, other groups that has to be worried about this is the 30 House Democrats who come from districts that Donald Trump won in 2016. And part of what the Republican machinery is doing is going after those people. They voted, except for one, for impeachment, Republicans would like to be sure they pay a price for that politically as well.
1: And the campaign is really capitalizing this as well, too. Sources say every time there's a twist and turn in this entire process, you see that um, being advertised to supporters. And they say there's a spike in the money that they're bringing in every time uh, something significant happens. And so they're not shying away from this. And and they're owning the fact that it's helping them financially. So we'll continue to see um, sort of this uh, campaign for more money as this process
3: goes on. Is there concern in the White House about Lev Parnas, Rudy Giuliani's business associate, you've heard Senator Cornyn and others say not credible, not worth listening to? There is
1: concern because there's a recognition among sources who are being honest that even if he's not an official witness, he's already impacting this trial. Unless senators are completely tuned out, they are absorbing what he is saying and they are seeing what he is dropping in these document dumps. So even though the president insists that he has no idea who Parnas is, the problem is Parnas has receipts. And, and he's, selfies. Exactly. Not one, not two, but a whole collection that tells a story of two men who know each other um, over the course of years. And so the president has to add to his defense. He can't just say, I don't know
9: who he is. You know, I think great TV maybe, but I'm not sure it matters in the substance of the trial in that there's not really dispute over what happened. Mm. Aid got delayed. The president wanted an investigation of Joe Biden by Ukraine. Now, there's an argument about whether it's an impeachable offense. There's an mm-hmm. argument about the president's motives. Uh, but, it, but in a way, the, the facts are, are set. And I wonder if at the end of the day, when we get to Election Day, does will this even matter? You know, this yeah. is part of the president, in a way... This, people have absorbed this idea
3: already and made up their minds about whether they can Well, Ed, what about that? And what about some of the jurors who are running for office themselves?
6: Right. So four, of course, are senators running for president. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and Michael Bennett, who spends most of his time in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. All of them concede this is going to be a problem for them. All of them we're, in, were on the trail again this weekend trying to button things up, admitting to voters I might not be back before caucus day. Sorry about that. Uh, they'll send their spouses. They'll send surrogates. They're establishing office hours at their campaign offices across New Hampshire and Iowa for people to come meet their surrogates and ask questions. And they will find ways from Washington, if need be, to campaign, whether that's holding Skype sessions with voters or calling in to rallies and certainly doing television interviews. But they all understand they could be at a huge disadvantage. And if you look at the schedule in the coming days, who's spending most of their time in Iowa and New Hampshire? Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, who sit up there with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren at the top, especially in Iowa. So... We've never seen anything like this, and it will really sort of test whether being there and the face time that voters in these early states crave is a factor or whether those four centers have done enough already to bank away goodwill in votes.
3: And, Jerry, what do you make, though, uh, of the argument that Democrats need to be campaigning on issues like health care? Speaker Pelosi says, how do you respond to what Gary Cohn laid out, which was it's hard to run against a strong economy? Yeah.
8: How well, do you turn back to the subject? Well, first of all, I thought it was very instructive that there was almost no discussion of, a de- of a impeachment in the debate the Democrats had this week. They're not eager to talk about this out in the country. Second of all, I think Gary Cohen made a really good point. Where is the conversation in the Democratic primary uh, uh, dialogue about how to create jobs and what the role of the private sector is in creating jobs? You listen in vain. There's no discussion of that. And that's the Bernie Sanders-Elizabeth Warren effect on the field But you wonder whether that's really resonating with the moderates in the party because they would like to hear some conversation about job creation and good wages, and and they're not hearing it. The
9: person talking about that is Mike Bloomberg, who is not even competing Mm -hmm. um, in Iowa, and who I think maybe, uh, maybe somebody we're not talking about enough in terms of the possibility he could emerge as a contender. All right. Well,
3: thanks to all of you. We will be right back in a moment.
0: Okay, it's time to commit.
3: There is a lot of news on the Supreme Court beat this week. So who better to bring in for some analysis than our own chief legal correspondent, Jan Crawford? Jan, it's good to have you here. You know the court very well. And John Roberts, chief justice, we don't hear from him very often. He will now be at the center of this
10: Senate impeachment trial. What do you I mean, how is he going to shape this? Well, that's the thing. I mean, we may not hear very much from him at all during this trial because his role uh, in this trial is completely different than what you think of as the role of a judge. And in a sense, he doesn't really have a lot of power. The Senate sets the rules, so they have the first word, and they can overturn any of his rulings by a majority vote. So they have the last word. So John Roberts is going to be in this really kind of weird position where he may rule on some related matters or issues, uh, but then the Senate could overrule him if it disagrees. And this is what now he's stepping into one of the most politically heated partisan environments. Staying above that exactly. is going to be tough. Exactly. It'll be very tough, and that's why a lot of people said this is a nightmare for the chief justice, but it's also an opportunity. Because it's an opportunity to him, for him to show in this hyper-partisan environment of the Senate that he is above politics, that he is neutral, that he's not taking one side or the other. So he's going to go there as the face of the Supreme Court and potentially see that as an opportunity to remind the American people that judges are above politics. That is his opportunity, and that is also his challenge.
3: i want to ask you about something else that seemingly was historic this week. Uh, both houses of the Virginia legislature uh, voted for to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, a lot of people would say, wait, isn't that already law that you have to treat men and women equally? But actually, this proposal was never amended. Uh, to the Constitution. You need 38 states, three-fourths of the country to actually go ahead and do it. Why has that benchmark, why
10: has this country never reached it and gone ahead and amended this in the Constitution? Well, I mean, that's a great question, right? Because on the surface, it seems, you know, really straightforward. Of course, women uh, should be treated equally in the workplace. Of course, women should get the same kind of equal access that men would. Uh, And that was the way it was viewed in 1972, Uh, when Congress, with the broad support, bipartisan, supermajority of two-thirds, approved that resolution and sent it to the states to ratify. Three-fourths of the states needed to ratify it, 38 states. Uh, And it gave the states a deadline of seven years to do so. Everyone thought it's going to happen. 30 states passed it within the first year. Five more got on board pretty soon after that. And then it ground to a halt. And the reason is conservatives started kind of taking issue with certain things including the issue of abortion. The Supreme Court ruled in Roe versus Wade in 1973 uh, that women had a constitutional right uh, to abortion and um, Then it occurred to certain activists that this ERA could further enshrine abortion rights in the Constitution. Uh, So it became controversial. Uh, And there were other issues that that activists pointed out on the right uh, that would raise concerns potentially for women.
3: And you said something
10: important there, a seven-year deadline. So this means it's expired. Congress— Is this just symbolic? Potentially, yes. After this expired in 1979, Congress tried to extend it to 1982 just to give the states more time, and no states jumped at it, so it got stuck at 35. Um, Virginia now ostensibly would be the 38th state because we've had two other states recently also approve it. Um, and the House later this month is going to take up a resolution to take out that deadline from the original amendment, uh, but. That's entirely questionable whether that's constitutional. Mm -hmm. Congress passed that in 1972 with two-thirds vote. Uh, And now to say that they're going to change it with a simple majority, the courts, uh, I think it's it's pretty suspect. And they're going to have a huge legal battle on that, that potentially going back to John Roberts could make its way to the Supreme Court. And on to your desk, (laughs) Jan Crawford. (laughs) Thank you very much.
3: That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler, Republican Senator John Cornyn, and former Director of the National Economic Council, Gary Cohn. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music.